0: This is Competition Law, with Professor Karan Beaton-Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy, and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this episode, Karan speaks with the man who has been called the
1: Adam Smith of Googlenomics, Hal Varian, Google's Chief Economist. I think that regulators and antitrust authorities should be appropriately humble about their ability to predict the future because we in the industry have certainly become pretty humble on that uh, ground. You don't want to intervene because there's some anticipated or expected or maybe bad thing that will happen down the road. You really want to have hard evidence that some particular behavior is causing problems. He is Bates and wells
0: so many of us seem to trust google after all we routinely turn to it with questions we wouldn't ask our mother or best friend but in the face of its gargantuan market power could that trust be misplaced can we trust google with our personal data and can or should we trust it not to abuse its dominance to play by the competition rulebook? These are just some of the questions that came up in this episode's wide-ranging exchange with Hal Varian during his recent visit to Australia. In between his wall-to-wall engagements, Hal and I worked through his thoughts on antitrust responses to big data and big tech, when concentration is and is not a problem, why Google is, in his words, the best thing that ever happened to privacy and much, much more. Speaking of data, Cal spends much of his time at Google working with data scientists. And having never been up close and personal with one myself, I was curious, just what's that like?
1: (laughs) Well, I have to know who's listening before I answer that question. But uh, yeah, I've worked with uh, data scientists at Google from the very beginning, from 2002, We had a group called AdStats back then, and we did a lot of analytics surrounding the ad system. So it was a group of computer engineers, a group of statisticians, some econometricians, and it was a great deal of fun because we could get fantastically detailed data. We could analyze it to our heart's content. The only trouble is it had to be done tomorrow.
0: (laughs) If not yesterday.
1: Exactly.
0: Hal, you are very well known for your best-selling book, Information Rules, amongst other things. And in that book, you argued that economic principles are durable, that technology may change, but economics will not. Twenty years later, do you still adhere to that view? Is there no such thing as the new economics for the new economy?
1: Well, that statement in Information Rules, who by the way was co-authored with my colleague Carl Shapiro, we were explicitly pushing back against the new economy theme because the rules didn't all change. A lot of the rules are really very, very durable and I would say when you look at how the new economy has played out, it's made me even more of a believer in that position. You can learn a lot from history and looking at other sorts of technological change, as well as looking at durable economic principles.
0: So, if there was to be a second edition of the book, would there be a new chapter on a different topic, or do you feel those rules, as you say, pretty much stand and should be applied today as they did back then?
1: Well, we've actually thought about that. We have a little outline for the mythical second edition, But one of the aspects that we would go into in more detail is two-sided markets, matching markets of one form or another since those have become very prevalent. We had a chapter on auction design and its role online, but we had to take it out because the book was too long. So we would absolutely add that back in. we would talk about learning by doing, that's an economic concept where as you – produce more and more, you gain experience, you gain expertise, you become more productive, and that's a very important force at work as well, not only in this sector, but in every sector.
0: When the book was published, it was around the time of the battle between Microsoft and the competition agencies in the US and Europe. You also said in the book that you don't believe antitrust law to stand in the way of companies pursuing their chosen strategies do you still adhere to that view or has it been tempered in any way through recent developments?
1: Well, as you well know, when you look at antitrust law, there's nothing illegal or wrong about being big or even being dominant in some use of the term. But the question is, do you misuse that power in ways that harm potential competitors? Mm-hmm. So the simplest form of this view is we believe the race should go to the person that runs the fastest not the person that trips the other runners. Yes. And uh, that's really the essence of antitrust law in one sense. Yeah.
0: What do you see as the optimal role for antitrust in supporting or even cultivating the information economy? Is it a interventionist role? Is it a hands-off role?
1: There could be cases where there was abuse of a dominant position. Mm. Certainly that could happen in any industry, really, and the antitrust authorities would intervene in those cases. But there's also regulatory issues that really have nothing much to do with competition, but just behavior that's socially acceptable or legally appropriate, and that would tend to be a separate issue. So lots of things that people are discussing about dealing with the current situation in the online economy. Some are really regulatory changes, some are antitrust activities, and lay people tend to confound the two.
0: But given the astonishingly fast pace of change in the online economy Mm -hmm. and the critical role played by innovation in particular – what does that lead you to counsel, if I can put it that way, antitrust enforces in terms of the way in which they make judgments about when to intervene? Right.
1: Well, I think that regulators and antitrust authorities should be appropriately humble about their ability to predict the future because we in the industry have certainly become pretty humble on that uh, ground. You don't want to intervene because there's some anticipated or expected or maybe bad thing that will happen down the road, you really want to have hard evidence that some particular behavior is causing problems Mm. that might be dealt with by competition authorities or by regulatory authorities.
0: Well, what would you say are the risks of agencies not following that approach and taking more of a, as you described it, anticipatory approach to harm?
1: Well, I can use a specific example. There's a lot of talk about acquisitions, and the question is some people argue that tech companies are acquiring potential competitors, and they'll cite various examples. But of course, there are four times as many acquisitions as IPOs in the venture capital world. If you really tried to restrict acquisitions, you would impact innovation. I think there's no question about that whatsoever. And the fact that this would have to be anticipatory, that at some point in the future, this potential acquisition could maybe possibly Mm. grow into a competitor, that would be pretty presumptuous Mm. to think that you had a clear idea of when, where that would occur.
0: Yes, there's no doubt merger review involves a degree of crystal ball gazing. Let's talk briefly about the role of economics in antitrust analyses. There's a lot of discussion nowadays and some concern about what's seen as a degree of populism Mm -hmm. in antitrust. And it was a, a famous Chicago school economist, Henry Simons, who said, Academic economics is primarily useful both to the student and to the political leader as a prophylactic against popular fallacy. Oh, what a good quote. Well, I was
1: going to ask you if you agree, (laughs) but you preempted
0: the question. Well, but
1: it's putting some discipline into all of the speculation we were talking about that you want to apply economic analysis in a principled way, rather than the latest fad or political intervention of one form or another. So you need to have some standards, some principles that can be utilized in identifying where there might actually be harm to competition.
0: We started off by talking about your view that those economic principles are durable and assume you would also say universal. They're not jurisdiction-specific. And yet we see, let's just take the US and the EU as examples, Mm -hmm. to quite different approaches to the application of those principles, what do you put that divergence down to?
1: Well, there are cultural differences. If you look at Europe, they're much more likely to move to regulatory requirements of one sort or another than we are in the US, or for that matter, perhaps even in Australia, Mm -hmm. where we want to see how things are playing out. We want to see if there's really a harm. And if there is, then you should intervene, no question about it. But it's not as if regulation should be the first move. It should be something that's come after a considered investigation and debate and discussion and analysis.
0: Well, you've referred to cultural differences, but I wondered whether you thought there was any role for politics
1: in this. I include politics in that uh, <laughs> in cultural statement.
0: And no doubt you would have heard that the recent spate of European Commission actions are inspired by some more general anti-U.S. sentiment and almost a form of digital protectionism Do you subscribe to that view?
1: I'm not going to consider that particular issue.
0: Let's talk then more about some of the specific tools in antitrust which are underpinned by the economic principles, and particularly market definition, Ah. which is a thorny issue, not just in the current context, but in any antitrust context. Would you say that the current approach to defining markets? is sufficiently flexible to deal with issues in digital markets and particularly two-sided ones? Mm -hmm. Or would you say that that's a tool that needs some adaptation?
1: Well, I think it's true that in all antitrust cases, the very first thing to do is to define the relevant market. And typically, the competition authorities want to make that market narrow and the plaintiffs want to make that market definition broad. So the question is, what principles can you use to make that a grounded determination rather than a matter of opinion? And there are tests like the hypothetical monopolist test, which has been utilized in the U.S. and it's been accepted by the European court as a good way to define markets and that's where you look at what would happen if the price in your market went up, up, up. What would the user do to switch to alternatives? And so that's a pretty good way to think about market definition and I think most scholars these days find that a good thought experiment. In the cases that the European Commission has investigated surrounding Google, the market definitions they used were, one might say, rather narrow. So in the case of Android, they said the market was licensable operating systems used outside of China.
0: For mobile?
1: For mobile, yes. And when they used the Google Shopping case, The market was what they called comparison shopping services where you can compare prices and features, but you could not actually buy anything. If you could buy anything, it wasn't in the market. So it ruled out, for example, Amazon, just like the first case, ruled out Apple. Mm -hmm. That seems strange to us, I must say, because when we are looking at our own strategy and what our competitors are doing, obviously companies like Apple and Amazon are very much at the top of the list.
0: Would that give rise to a concern on your part that market definition as an exercise is subject to what you might call gerrymandering, starting with a view as to what the outcome should be on liability and working back to come up with a market definition that would fit?
1: Well, gerrymandering, I would not use that particular term. I would say that it's certainly subject to debate and discussion and analysis and judges and legal authorities will take the market definition procedure into account when they're evaluating the case. So it's a central part of antitrust. Mm.
0: You refer to the two high-profile cases that the European Commission has found against Google. Can we just stop on the Android one for a moment because it's attracted a lot of commentary in recent months. As you said, the effect of the market definition by the Commission was to exclude Apple from the market. I don't want you to comment on whether or not that definition was right or wrong in law, but how do you reconcile it with the history and the strategy that Google has used in mobile
1: well, I think what's not commonly appreciated is we recognized pretty early that mobile would be an important force going forward. At that time, it was Microsoft who was touting their Windows mobile operating system, and we realized that we had to have a response to that. It's a bit of a surprise that the competition really didn't come so much from Microsoft, but rather from Apple. And let's face it, they produced a really quality product that was very attractive to people and all of the other OEMs who were making mobile phones came to Google and say, help, help, we've got to have a way to survive in this new world with an interoperable operating system that's available to all parties that we can use to build an infrastructure that can compete with this very strong new entry into the system. One of the very interesting things that we did in terms of responding to the entry case is write up a little history of how it developed. And it's really a classic case in building an ecosystem using open source software. Mm. And that, that's really the critical thing. about Why
0: did you decide to make uh, it
1: open source? Yes. Excellent question. Well, suppose you're an OEM. And you say, well, Google, yeah, they've got this operating system, but maybe they'll lose interest in two years, or maybe they won't support it, or maybe they'll change it in a way that we don't like. And so Google says it's open source. You'll always have that open source. If something changes with respect to Google, you've still got full control over the operating system for your phone. So that's something that was very important to the OEMs who joined the Android ecosystem Because it gave them assurance that they would always have access to that system.
0: But why then at the same time prevent them from having access to modified versions of the Android operating system, Android forks?
1: So there's an anti-fragmentation agreement because the OEMs demanded an anti-fragmentation agreement because if you ended up with silos of several different phones that didn't interoperate it wouldn't be effective response to Mm -hmm. the Apple iPhone at all. Mm -hmm. So they demanded anti-fragmentation and we concurred that we wanted to have interoperability. That was absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. The companies were free to use the Android operating system for their own devices that didn't satisfy the anti-fragmentation agreements. So for example, Amazon did that. The Amazon Fire operating system is really a spin-off from Android. And that was fun. That was what open source means. Mm-hmm. And the Android has been used in lots of other devices that are not really phones, if you use, look at the speakers, the smart speakers they're running on the Android operating system, so on, so, and so on. So we released the system, you could do what you want with it. If you wanted to join this interoperability ecosystem, then you had to be interoperable. And you had to pass a series of tests that validated that interoperability.
0: Moving on from market definition and thinking about the assessment of market power and competitive effects steps in the analysis that come after the definition of the market. Do you think the current approach takes enough account of non-price variables for competition and market power given that so many of the products and services now offered in the online economy are in fact free, which means when looking for the harm that you were describing, at least on the demand side of the market, we've got to be looking at other variables that are not price-related. What's your view on what those variables should be, and do you think sufficient weight is given to them in these analyses?
1: Some of the critics of the current approach, the consumer welfare approach, say that antitrust is looking too narrowly just at price issues, but that's completely wrong. There have been dozens of cases over the years that had to do with innovation and incentive to improve products and quality and all of these other things. So those are perfectly in accord Mm -hmm. with the consumer welfare approach to harm. In fact, if you go back to that original Microsoft case you were describing, that was not about price. That was about innovation. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the cases we face today, it's really the same issue. Now, Google and Amazon are the two biggest spenders on R&D in the world. So it's very hard to make a case that there's restriction of innovation in this sector. Innovation is a very big deal to us and it's an important aspect of antitrust. But I must say it's one that the tech companies pass with flying colors. Mm -hmm. We're spending a lot on R&D. I have a lot of results to show for it.
0: What about data and data holdings as a source of market power? Um, Very aware of your view, and it's a view shared by many, that as data is nowadays ubiquitous and non-rivalrous, that it does not therefore impede contestability of markets. But is that really the case when you think about the sheer scale of data that a company like Google would hold? Is it realistic to say that another search engine might come in and effectively compete at that scale, given, let's think about Bing, backed by another big tech giant in Microsoft, hasn't made it really as an effective competitor to Google? Would you place limits around that argument that, well, anyone can amass data and so the market is open?
1: Well, if we take Bing... In particular, I would push back a little bit on this point that they haven't made it because about half of the searches in the U.S. are conducted on Bing, mm. 35% search share. It comes as a default choice in Windows 10 on the Edge browser, and they've been able to leverage that into pretty strong position. Mm. What's interesting about Microsoft is why they haven't pushed harder at the rest of the world. And I honestly don't know the answer there, why they pretty much focus primarily on the U.S. market. One of the things we did at Google very early on is Eric Schmidt announced the 40 languages policy. And the 40 languages policy said every application we produced had to be available in 40 languages within 90 days of its release in English. And that really focused people's attention on looking at the global Mm. platform. Mm. So we were focused globally quite early and not every company was.
0: If the power doesn't necessarily lie in the mere possession of data, where might the power lie? You talk a lot about the expertise involved Mm -hmm. in, in data analytics. Is there effectively a competitive war for talent now? Would a company like Google have power in that manner?
1: Well, absolutely. The expertise is critically important. And you think about a student graduating from college, they're going to want to go to the company where they're going to learn the most. You should think about your first job as really a postgraduate experience. So we do invest a lot in hiring people. Now, we're not the sole hire in this area. We have to compete against the other companies who are doing the same thing. For example, Amazon in the last year has hired 130 econometricians, PhD econometricians. Microsoft is hiring data analysts. We're hiring data analysts. Plus, all the startups are saying we need data engineers, we need data analysts to help with uh. But can our they compete well.
0: with Microsoft, Amazon, they can, and Co. They can to get find that them.
1: Talent. Yeah, they can find them. A lot of times they'll get somebody who's worked for one of the large companies and then wants to try their hand at being a startup. And so people enter the small company startup arena after five years of experience or six years of experience. Mm -hmm. So they might have a harder time competing for the people who are fresh out of school because they want to go where they can learn the most. But once they've spent five years (laughs) learning the most, then uh, they're also conceivably interested in these other areas.
0: Just coming back to the connection between big data and power – There's another argument that the power lies in network effects and externalities associated with that, and the argument is that there's a tendency to create winner-takes-all-markets as a result of network effects. Your view on that argument?
1: So, as you know, we wrote about network effects. In fact, I uh, remember one day I fell asleep and I dreamed I was lecturing a bunch of Silicon Valley executives about network effects. Is that a
0: good dream or a bad dream?
1: I woke up, and by God, I was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But they weren't. You were in dream time?
1: That's just my little joke. (laughs) Anyway, the thing is, yeah, they're a real thing, network effects. If you look at a company like Facebook, you'd have to say, well, direct network effects played a role. But then again, there were several other companies that also had social networks where they did not succeed the way Facebook succeeded. If you look at Google – Google search really doesn't have network effects in any meaningful sense in my view. But if you look at an operating system like iOS or like Windows or like Android, there's a indirect network effect there because the developers want to go where the users are, the users want to go where the developers are and so you'll see these coalescing. Nowadays, what's happened is pretty much every application that's available for iOS is also available for Android and vice versa. Maybe not the same brand or the same name, but if you look at games, if you look at apps, if you look at other uh, capabilities, you can pick the ecosystem that you find to be the most attractive. Mm -hmm. So I would say network effects, yes, indeed, sometimes they play a role, but they don't Explain the whole set of phenomena that are out there in online competition.
0: And there's an argument, too, that network effects might spiral up. They can equally go into decline, and there's plenty of examples of withered platforms out there that would bear that out. There's also an argument that massive data accumulation and its use are tantamount to an undue concentration of economic power and that that has social effects. Inequality is often cited, political effects, crony capitalism often cited in that context. Do you subscribe to any aspect of that view?
1: I think that's really overreach, trying to take one industry, one phenomenon of a few large firms that have mastered the process of using this new technology and say that extends to all the world's woes That uh, just seems like complete overreach from my point of view.
0: But the proposition, let's take it out of the big tech context, just this simple proposition that concentration of itself in any industry, let's say across an economy, is a vice. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, that is one view and the neo-Brandeisian view, as people sometimes call it these days. I tend to be much more on the side of, let's look at the economic evidence. Concentration itself is not a problem, it would be what follows from that concentration. If there were anti-competitive behavior that came out of the concentration, then you would say, oh, that's a bad thing. But if the concentration arose because the firms that were the most successful grew and the firms that were least successful shrunk, that's markets at work. That's exactly what we would want to see. We want to see the most productive, most successful firms increase their market share as the other ones don't.
0: Well, talking about transitory nature of concentration and market dominance, you may be aware there's a book that's been written by George Gilder, tech investor and author, called Life After Google, suggesting that even Google's dominance might be transitory. And he argues that Google has contributed to a centralized, largely Google-governed system for the internet, quite contrary to the early visions of how the internet would work. But he also predicts that this might be disrupted by blockchain and what he calls the cryptocosm, which will decentralize and distribute
1: power and perhaps tackle that concentration issue.
0: Do you have thoughts on that thesis?
1: Well, I haven't read George's book, so I can't really comment on that. But I do want to comment on one point you made, namely, it's certainly true that this success could easily be transitory, and let me mention two companies that were absolute giants in their field. One is Xerox, one is Kodak. Mm. Where are they today? They were... Disrupted. (laughs) Totally disrupted. (laughs) Well and truly. And that could happen to at least some of these firms that we're discussing. I hope it doesn't happen to Google, but it's certainly something that one should worry about.
0: Well, positing the
1: possible disruption of Google, I'd like you just to listen to something that Scott Galloway,
0: who's an NYU professor, has to say about Google.
1: Google is a modern man's God. As we become more evolved and more educated, we become less likely to believe in God. But our anxieties and our desires for answers continue to grow and Google is filling that spiritual gap. One in five queries presented to Google have never been asked before in the history of mankind. What priest or rabbi is so trusted, so credible that 20% of the queries, questions given to that individual have never been asked before in the history of mankind. The most trusted person in the world in history is Google.
0: Now, Hal, I'm not gonna ask you whether you think Google has godlike like qualities.
1: I do think that if Google did not exist, man would have to invent it. Okay, so it's indispensable.
0: (laughs) But he does say a lot about the level of trust that people have in Google as evinced by their behavior, the types of questions they ask, the fears that they share, the intimate details of their life that they disclose. What do you put that level of trust by its users down to?
1: Well, I mean, noted authority in this area, Mark Twain, who said, two can keep a secret if one of them's dead. Now, I hate to think of Google as being dead, but it's not exactly alive either. And people do feel much more comfortable asking questions of Google that they would hesitate to ask to their mother, their father, their lawyer, their doctor, their priest, their minister, their accountant, on and on and on.
0: Because it's nonjudgmental?
1: Because it's not a person. And I think it's right that it is safer to ask a confidential question to Google than it is to ask it to people. I've proposed the following test, and maybe your audience can uh, contemplate this. Go ask Google how to get rid of head lice, and you will get a good answer. Go ask your colleague how to get rid of head lice, and then see who sits next to you at lunch.
0: I have to confess, I have actually asked Google that question. Having to, uh, I think most parents children. have encountered
1: this at one point or another.
0: That's right. Mm. Do you think there's any aspect of this trust that you would put down to the fact that it's free?
1: Well, it's not so much the fact that it's free; is that it's ubiquitous and widely available. If it's you super use... quick, that's right. And so it's there on your phone, on your computer, and it's very convenient. You can ask questions with a voice. You can ask questions with type There's all sorts of ways. We've we've done everything we could to make Google available and accessible to people. Mm. Uh, And I think that's why people use it for these kinds of questions.
0: Would you say it is genuinely free? Is there no price?
1: Free? Well, yeah. Intangible price that consumers pay? So there's this issue you sometimes hear about ad support. And I think it's fair to say that people pay with attention, right, when you're looking at the ads, but that's no different than TV or magazines, newspapers, radio, et cetera. Typically, the ad-supported media provide you with content. They put in some ads. You pay attention to those ads to some small degree, and that's the monetization that supports the generation of the content in the first place. So it's not such an unusual model. It's pretty much a standard model for certain kinds of uh, content production.
0: Many would say that users are paying with their data, which gives rise to the question of privacy. At a function you and I attended last night, you made the statement that Google is the best thing that ever happened to privacy. I'm sure that would seem counterintuitive to some, given, as we just said, how much we Mm -hmm. disclose to Google. Can well, you
1: unpack that for us? Sure. I think it's, of course, this is my opinion. This is not the official Google position, but it is a fantastic boon to have access to this authoritative and secure question-answering mechanisms. You might have questions that you would hesitate to discuss with a reference librarian or some other professional, even though they were bound by vows of secrecy. Google is just a very good place to get answers to questions that might otherwise be considered sensitive. And I think it is. We have a record of keeping those questions very confidential. Data is encrypted at Google. There's a whole set of procedures that you would have to go through to even look at any of that data, and then, of course, it's anonymized after nine months, etc., cetera, et cetera. That's not true with people. They don't anonymize the question after nine months. We do.
0: But any dealing in data can't be risk-free in terms of security, and there's every second week some security-related headline. Can I come back to that idea of blockchain? Do you see that as perhaps a more secure model for the internet that will deal with these growing concerns about data security and about privacy?
1: Right. Well, I would say blockchain is one technology, but the most important technology is intelligent use of encryption. And the weakness now is identity verification, where really we think it would be a much more secure system if more people use two-factor identification. That is a password plus your mobile device, for example. Mm. And that would help a lot.
0: What would you say is possibly the biggest misconception about Google when it comes to antitrust?
1: Well, I do think there's a big misconception about this role of data that we touched on a few minutes ago. If you look at Google's primary advertising mechanism, it's search advertising. And the way search advertising works is the advertiser picks a keyword, the user picks a query, if the query matches the keyword, the ad is relevant to be shown. Mm. There's no personal information in there, there's no profiling, there's nothing else, it's just does a query that the user is issuing match the keywords that the advertiser chose. Mm. Now there are other kinds of advertising that do use information. For example, I'm sure you've had the experience of browsing at some product, and then for the follows you around the web, web, exactly. Mm that's called remarketing retargeting i like reminder ads because they're trying to remind you that's actually something the advertiser typically sets mm-hmm. says here's a visitor on my website google the next time you see this cookie show this ad mm-hmm. and so the advertiser can say we want to remind people that they were looking at this beautiful pair of shoes and they should go out and buy them now some people find that annoying, some people find that just fine, some people think it's useful, some people just don't. You're in control. You can turn that off, you can turn that on. It's up to you how you deal with those kinds of... Uh, so, but
0: ag. So where's the misconception that antitrust agencies because have they about this? Because I think that
1: everything has to do with the data where it's really only this relatively small dimension has to do with the data. Of course, and just to qualify that a bit, we do use data to improve our product, mm. but so should everybody. Mm. <laughs> that's not anything that's unique to Google or even unique to the information technology. Indeed, antitrust
0: agencies could make some good exactly, use of data. Exactly,
1: exactly right.
0: Last question, How, It's right to say Google is under intense antitrust-related scrutiny, not just in Europe in many other countries around the world. Through the Google world view, where really does antitrust feature, if at all? I heard Sundar Pichai say the other day that We're in this for the long game, and all of the rest is noise. Mm -hmm. Your view
1: on that? Well, I think I alluded to this a little earlier. It's not that people are complaining about high prices. They're complaining about high profits, and there's nothing wrong with high profits as long as they're attained by legitimate means. And we have antitrust training for all of our executives. We're... I think, quite careful about doing activities that we think are fair competition, tactics and strategies that are, in fact, meaningful from the viewpoint of responding to these antitrust issues. Mm -hmm. So I think that we will continue to do that in the future, and I think that will be an adequate response to a lot of the issues you're referring to.
0: of PR statements and legal submissions, it's rare to hear directly from the insiders, the people at the coalface of the tech companies taking the antitrust heat. So I'm very grateful to Google, and to Hel especially, for providing us with this first-hand perspective on the many issues with which we're all concerned. It's a perspective, I know, that will resonate with many of you. No doubt, it will rile many others. Thank you also to those of you who sent me suggestions for the episode i hope i did some of your questions some justice next on competition law i talked to professor ruprecht Potzen about what's in the water in germany a country where the government and the competition agency have been on the front foot in responding to challenges posed by platforms in the meantime you can find links to some of the sources that came up in the episode as well as other references in the show notes. And if you want to listen back to earlier episodes canvassing other points of view on the issues discussed, you know where to go, competitionlore.com. While you're there, drop me a note in the comment box. Let me know what you thought of the episode. I'd love to hear from you. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecord.com and I'm Karan Beaton wells